0: Welcome to Gray Matter with me, Michael Krasny, and each week, as many of you know by now, we bring you an in-depth interview with opinion shapers and leading newsmakers, experts, artists, innovators in an international and interactive podcast. And you can learn more about us or join our growing community on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to our website, graymatter.show. Today's episode, uh, forgive me, we take a deep dive, so to speak, uh, into understanding the ocean and its ecosystem as we find out all about tuna fishing and environmental sustainability. Joining us is Susan Jackson, who serves as president of the nonprofit International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. It's a global partnership founded back in 2009 among the tuna industry, scientists, and the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which works toward long-term conservation and sustainable use of tuna stocks by reducing bycatch and promoting a healthy marine ecosystem. I should also say that Susan was formerly Vice President for Government Industry Relations and Seafood Sourcing for Del Monte Foods, and delighted to have her with us, and welcome to Gray Matter. Susan.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So good to have you, and uh, let's begin with kind of an overview. A lot of questions are already coming in for you, but kind of a broad question to begin with. There are so many types of fishing, a lot of them not legal. There are so many types of tuna, well, at least quite a variety why is it so vital to the marine ecosystem to conserve and sustain tuna
1: a lot of it has to do with the difficulty of conserving and sustaining tuna because they swim so much you know tuna's aren't like an oyster or a clam or or some other local fish that are just in a lake or in a bay you know maybe one state could manage them or one government could manage them kind of control their own boats Tunas swim in entire ocean basins. They swim across oceans. The stock will go in and out of national waters and exclusive economic zones and in the waters of many, many countries and in the waters of no country. So it takes very large international treaty bodies with many, many governments around the table to agree on what needs to be done to manage them. So that's the real challenge. Uh, with regard to managing tuna and why we think they deserve special attention.
0: And you have management uh, that really goes over about 17 different geographical areas. How do you maintain the monitoring and the conf- essentially the compliance that is necessary? So there's two, with any
1: catch of fish, right? There are There are two governing entities at the lowest level. There's the coastal state, in whose water is the fish being caught? And then there's the flag state. What country is the flag of that vessel? And both the coastal state and the flag state should have control over what's going on with regard to that catch. And then if it's on the high seas, that's for an organization called a regional fisheries management organization or those very large treaty bodies. They set the rules that all the governments agree to, but still it comes down to the flag state of that vessel collecting the data, monitoring the activities of the vessel, and reporting on its compliance.
0: And those regional fishery management organizations actually get cooperation and are able to sustain that cooperation?
1: Yes. I, I mean, they, they cooperated enough to develop their own treaties and their own charters, and and they um, all countries in any region that have an interest in the fishery participate. Um, the organizations themselves uh, have what a compliance body that looks at the compliance of its member nations um, and imposes sanctions, obviously not as quickly or robustly as many would wish, but the organizations do exist and um, they are operating.
0: It's amazing that you know, they operate with such cooperation and uh, are able to sustain it. But let's talk about your foundation. I mean, you're talking essentially about providing data and best practices and that sort of thing to NGOs, vessels, seafood companies, government agencies to keep the co- to keep the stock essentially sustainable. That's what you do, really, isn't it?
1: That is what we do. We, we have three main pillars that we work in. Number one is science. You know, we, we fund and we do a lot of science in collaboration with industry, in collaboration with fishing vessels, research institutions, making sure that the science is as good and robust as it can be and helping it to get better. We do advocacy or outreach to those member nations of the RFMOs. You know, every country that's sitting around that table is the voice of the constituents sitting behind it. And there is a person at the microphone with the flag, but usually behind that person sits all the people, you know, you have NGOs, you'll have vessel owners. And part of why ISSF was formed was to make sure the processors, the sellers of tuna had their voices heard and were giving that consistent cry and message out for the need to manage the these stocks and then we put our money where our mouth is we do a lot of verification we want to make sure that we are credibly demonstrating that the vessels and the companies are actually doing what they say that they're that they're doing so that our work will have credibility with the governments and the scientists that are putting out the recommendations.
0: So talk about how you measure efficacy. I know there's a lot of electronic monitoring, that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's different kinds of efficacy, right?
1: Um, one is how are the stocks themselves doing? And we work with the scientists that do the stock assessments to make sure they have the data and we track how the health of the different stocks change over time. Um, right now, our most recent report is if you look at the volume of tuna that's caught every year, 86% of it actually comes from stocks that are healthy, which is great. Um, and we, you want to keep moving it up to 100, and there are some you know, very notorious bad cases, but you want to make sure that at least that 86% stays healthy. Then you have to look at the amount of fishing effort, because the stock doesn't stay healthy if there's too much effort fishing that stock, So that too, you look at, you measure the amount of fishing effort and you monitor that. And then you look at the data that's collected on on bycatch. Are the vessels doing the best they can to not catch things other than tuna, other than what they are targeting? And if they do, are they doing the best they can to make sure that that animal is released using a method so that its chance of survivorship is as great as possible?
0: Yeah, I've been reading about uh, this ongoing controversy over catching lobsters and the effect on whales. I mean, let's talk about bycatch because tuna fishing has an impact on the whole marine environment and on other species. We're talking about sharks, sea turtles, uh, rays, manta rays and devil rays, uh, and also seabirds, which are endangered, uh, I think. Um, So there's all this need to reduce bycatch. And again, how is this done? I mean, give us a picture of how you do it and the efficacy.
1: Yep, so let's take the spectrum of bycatch, right? First of all, there's a lot of bycatch that should just be eaten, you know, like mahi-mahi. And and it often is eaten, and we want to make sure that it is. It's not food waste. It's comes from stocks that are healthy. It gets landed in the coastal communities where the vessels come to port, and it provides uh, food and protein for the folks who are there. We want to make sure that the data is caught captured on it. We want to make sure those stocks are stay healthy as well, but you don't want to waste that type of bycatch. Then you can go clear to the other extreme. You talked about some seabirds, turtles, some types of sharks. There are definitely some animals where the incidence or the bycatch rate is very, very low, but each one is also very, very bad. So you need to make sure that the boats are doing all they can to not catch them. Fortunately, with seabirds, and with turtles, with regard to tuna fishing, a lot of the what needs to be done is actually known already. And it becomes a question of enforcement and a question of monitoring and making sure that the boats themselves are employing the known techniques to not catch that type of animal. There are other um, types of bycatch where sometimes you still need to do research to see what is the best way to either not catch it or to not handle it. We have a scientist going out on a fishing boat in a couple of weeks with the, with the uh, well, I hate to say goal of catching a manta ray because you never want to catch a manta ray. But if you do, then they will be able to tag the manta ray, use the best known techniques and see how they can improve upon them to increase the survivorship of catching a manta ray. Um, because sometimes that just happens in a school of tuna you could have an unfortunate incident where some other animals are in there and you want to make sure you're handling them as well as possible.
0: Yeah, if I were inclined to catch a manatee, ray, I would not want to handle it. Uh, we want to catch it in some other way, to be sure. Uh, what about slings?
1: The, yeah. You use a sling yeah. to yeah. do it. <laughs> the
0: sling seems like a much more, uh, uh, not only viable, but important way to do it. Um, what about the echo sounders you use to essentially mm-hmm. ideal acoustics uh, signatures? Because you got all these different, tuna species as i said earlier
1: right that's a that is a really really interesting and great question and also bit, one of the things that we and other scientists that we've been working uh, with have been puzzling for years over so some fish have a thing called a swim bladder which helps regulate where it is in the water column and you know it kind of sounds different when you pig it with an eco sounder because it's you know a big hole of air inside its body and other tunas don't have a swim bladder so it's easy to tell with and without a part but there are two species of tuna yellowfin and big eye that both have swim bladders so early on we were able to get the acoustic signature of skipjack and we were able to get the acoustic signature of big eye but yellowfin proved to be challenging and then COVID hit So doing the experiments at sea proved to be challenging, but within the past few months, um, the scientists have gotten the data that they need to identify that swim bladder signature of yellowfin. And now when they publish that research, they'll be working with the buoy manufacturers so that they can train those buoys. And that means that a vessel skipper that's using an eco sounder can target particular types of tuna you know most times when fisheries have to stop or cut back it's because of the health of the yellowfin or the big eye stock not the health of the skipjack stock so all of this eco sounder work was geared around making sure that boats could not catch yellowfin or big eye if that were the species of concern but continue to catch skipjack which is the most Plentiful and reproduces the most quickly of the tuna species.
0: We've got lots of questions for you from uh, our community of listeners. Before I go to those questions, what do you do about illegal fishing? I I mean, in terms of just normal ways of using law enforcement, uh, are there any other means at your disposal or that you avail yourself of?
1: Sure. I I like to think that we take the approach, it's sort of like raising children, you know, when they're teenagers and they they're out with your car you, you can't be there and you can't guarantee that they're behaving every single minute but all you can do is make sure you've put enough things in place over the years that it's more likely than not that they are so with fishing boats there are absolutely things that you should look for and within the lifespan of issf some of these things seem pretty basic now but when we started they were not um, the first is a unique vessel identifier, a number, like a VIN number on your car that stays with the boat for forever. So if it changes names, changes owners, changes colors, changes flags, it is still that boat. And you know that it is that boat. Um, those are now quite prevalent in tuna fisheries. And when we started, they are not. So that that's one of the first things and more basic things. And then obviously at the other extreme, you want to make sure they're not on an IUU list. That is a vessel that has been caught and been proven to have been doing IUU fishing. And then you want to make sure that it's flagged to a flag state that is in fact reporting its data, right, to to the authorities that the scientists have access to the data, that the RFMOs have not found that that flag state has been delinquent in controlling its vessels or in upholding its responsibilities um, in how the vessel should behave. You want to make sure that it's actually on the authorized vessel record, because each region has a list of vessels that are allowed to be there. Well, you need to make sure that the boat you're buying from is actually on that list. You need to make sure that the flag state uh, of that boat is actually on the list of countries that's allowed to be there. You want to make sure it has some sort of an observer on board or it's participating in an observer program. So we take the approach of making sure that those steps along the way that you can verify make it much, much less likely that it's not engaging in illegal activity. And as technology improves and embracing of the technology improves, we hope that those legal steps, check marks you can look for will become more and more plentiful. So the level of certainty and comfort around everything with regard to your catch having been appropriate gets to be greater and greater.
0: Are you at liberty to say which countries do it best or which countries don't do it as well as others?
1: You know, I get asked that question about the tuna RFMOs too, which ones are good and which ones are bad. And my answer is everybody does something really, really well. And everybody has a few things they could do better. So we we like to make sure that the ones who are doing things well, understand that and understand what the next step is to do it the next good thing and we want to make sure that the countries or regions that are kind of lagging behind know that too know that they're lagging behind know what the steps are that they need to take and know that those steps are in fact being taken elsewhere so that they're possible
0: talking with susan jackson who heads up and is uh, essentially the leader of the international uh, Seaf- uh, seafood sustainability foundation i'm going to go to some of our listeners who uh have questions, and I'm going to bring those questions to the fore here. Before I go to the first question, Keith Harrison, joining us from London and the UK, uh, I wanted to put a little plug in here for the Seafood Watch, which actually rates uh, about 2,000 best choices as far as consumers go, or good alternatives, or fish to avoid, and they do a splendid job. I've followed them through the years, and a lot of them are located not far from where I am here in the Bay Area. But Keith Harrison is in London, and I mentioned them because he wants to know, what, if anything, can we do as consumers to help promote long-term sustainable fisheries?
1: Hi, Keith, and I hope things are going well in London, one of my favorite places, and I'm going to be back there in November for some meetings. So looking forward to getting back. Um, well, ISSF's overarching goal is that all tuna fisheries are capable of being certified to the Marine Stewardship Council standard, also based in London. Um, so that is the the goal that we place out there for when we know that a tuna fishery has gotten to you know the best it can. And then also we hope it continues to improve. So the first and easiest thing and most visible thing I would say for consumers to look for is that blue tick, as they call it, of MSC certified seafood. And then there are, as Michael said, ratings uh, groups like as the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch that also provide information to consumers. Part of the Your difficulty, I would say, potentially in using something like the Seafood Watch will be if you're at a restaurant, having a server who can answer the questions you need to have answered in order to make use of that tool. So another thing I tell consumers is you need to ask those questions because the restaurants and the markets where you buy your fish need to know that the people who are their customers care about these things so that then they will care about those things. Um, So those are my two tips. Ask questions, use the Seafood Watch Guide if you can, and Marine Stewardship Council with the Blue
0: Tick. Good tips. And we thank Keith for the question. Let me go to another question from Chicago. Sam Wright wants to know what are FADs and how are they used in tuna fishing?
1: Good question. FADs, or FADs as we call them, um, are called fish aggregating devices. So, way back in the day, um, a, a captain, a tuna captain, would find a school of fish using binoculars, usually way up on the mast, looking for birds, and then head in that direction. And often when they got there, they would see a log or a dead animal or, you know, something that fish were collecting under. And then they'd circle their net and, and they'd catch a school or a set of tuna. Well, the crafty ones started putting logs out or things out and putting little radio beacons on them so they could find them and then as usually happens with technology it was off to the races from there to make fads um you know every skipper has what they would call i would say a proprietary recipe for how they like to make their fads and they think they work best in their ocean given the currents or the you know the drifts where they have licenses and it is basically a man-made equivalent of that log that sort of takes the luck and guesswork out of it and their beacons on it so that they can find them um but it's made fishing effective fast it changed the bycatch parameters of what's being caught so a lot of the work we've done at sea is looking at different designs of fads to minimize that bycatch that 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 is caught or entangled to make the sets mostly tuna and the eco sounder buoy work that I was talking about. That's because they put the buoys on the fads so they could understand better what's under the tuna. And then also working on biodegradable materials to try to minimize the ecosystem impacts of them when they're no longer being used. So a fad is called a fish aggregating device. It's a high tech, but in today's tech world, it wouldn't really be a high tech thing, version of looking for logs floating in the ocean that is now become a type of fishing gear and absolutely needs to be actively managed and controlled.
0: Are there other kinds of technology that have made their way into tuna fishing that have advanced it toward this brave new world that we live in, where uh, unfortunately the ocean is uh, being harvested like slash and burn agriculture often? I don't want to necessarily to be too editorial here, but that t- the technology is something you have to really keep up with, don't you?
1: Uh, yes, boats get bigger, boat get, boats get more efficient, boats get faster. That's definitely something that the tuna scientists look at is trying to, because your catch statistics from years ago are no longer, you have to adjust for the efficiency of today's boats to really understand what boats are able to catch. So that's, um, that's, one type of technology improvement another type of technology improvement that actually has really been helpful is improving the freezing capacity of vessels because if if tuna gets caught and a lot of it gets caught and it's not frozen quickly and kept frozen you know then you waste a lot of it um so there's There are bad parts to technology, but there are good parts to technology as well. I don't view technology as good or bad in and of itself. I think it's important that data be captured about technology, that the scientists and managers understand how things are changing because of technology and, you know, then adjust the management and regulatory systems accordingly.
0: Again, we're talking to Susan Jackson and let's hear from more of you who are listening. David Anderson from Seattle says, what research have you done to increase schools of bait fish on which tuna feed? ISSF has not done any of that. The the main line of
1: bait fish work, and it still has not been a major line of our work, has been um, making sure that Poland line tuna fisheries that use bait fish, collect and report their data on the bait fish that they use and 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 same with long lines so it is it's a data collection to the scientists who can then make sure that there's information out there about the health of different bait fish stocks so that fishers using those types of gear can procure or source their bait fish from stocks that are healthy
0: And another question coming from Juan Robles in Mexico city. What's the hardest lesson that you've learned in the history of the ISS foundation? I, there were a couple.
1: So first of all, by training, I'm a lawyer. So I understand conflict and advocacy. And then I did a stint lengthy stint in the corporate world. So I understood, uh, corporate competition, business competition, which is also very healthy. Um, as long as the playing field's level. What I completely underappreciated was the extent of competition in the environmental stakeholder community. I I, naively at the very beginning thought that um, NGOs were more mission-driven and they are mission-driven for sure, um, but there still is a lot of competition for grant money, for funders, for donors, for making sure that their solutions are um you know sort sort of the ones that are rise to the top um which which sometimes can be frustrating because when you're trying to bring industry and scientists and the environmental community together to work collectively on solutions that can be implemented um you wish it were easier to get to agreement sometimes on on what the solutions are that should be implemented. Although, excuse so that, me, I
0: was just thinking about the fact I asked you that uh, loaded question about what countries do it better, which you hear often, or do it worse. The Netherlands has really distinguished itself for bringing those different sectors together and actually finding some common ground. Just They have. To, yeah.
1: They have. I mean, the United States has a lot. Europe has, I, you know, most country delegations now have on the delegation, scientific experts, environmental experts, and industry experts. And I think that is very, very important. Um, the other lesson that I just sort of learned through uh, observation in the ISSF world is ISSF, since we have that, you know, sort of, all different types of stakeholders i look at us like a water balloon so you know when you push on one side something's coming out the other side and if any one of those groups starts getting too happy someone else is about to explode and those explosions were were hard lessons but good lessons to learn so you remember that we are just a water balloon
0: well <laughs> that's a way of synthesizing quite a metaphor in fact when i think about it i was also thinking when you were talking about your corporate experience uh Some wag said that um, tuna fishing is a metaphor for marketing. Do you see it? Does that make sense to Hmm. you? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. That's why I asked you. Um, And and what about greenwashing? I mean, it goes on, obviously. Uh, It does. Talk about it.
1: Yeah, and it's a problem, and that's one of the ways that I we think ISSF is leading by example. We don't just say what the participating companies or the vessels should do. We have third-party audit. We publish what they should do. We publish audit protocols on how we're going to demonstrate that they're doing it. We have a third-party compliance auditor, MRAG Americas, who does audits every year and publishes audit reports and audit results so that, you know, whatever they say they're doing, or we say the participating companies and vessels are doing, it is credibly demonstrated. Um, I guess this will be another hard lesson that we learned is we wish that uh, others in industry would have taken on board also that need for broad-based, consistent, credible demonstration. I, I think that it is something that's lacking. Um, You know, industry is absolutely needed to bring about the change in the environment on all topics that we need in the global scale. And they have a very, very vital role to play. Um, It'll become even more meaningful when there is alignment on how to measure progress and how to report against progress. Because as long as those things are not aligned, any sort of self-declared reports of progress are still pretty unhelpful.
0: Well, I know you do a lot of global education. Aside from the education side of things, how can pressure be brought? And where does that pressure come from? With industry.
1: With industry, yep. Um, Well, one of the... One of the reasons why ISSF got started actually was there was a lot of NGO outreach and pressure put on retailers to understand better what was happening with the tuna industry. And then as the NGOs and the retailers in the industry, uh, the processors, we already knew it and the vessels knew it as well, this understanding of this global regional fisheries management organization system and how many countries need to be involved, it very quickly became very clear that the more consistent a message can be on what is needed from every country's constituency sitting around that table, if they're all hearing the same thing from their industry and their NGO partners and their scientists behind them, it makes it much easier to get to that unanimous agreement around the table that's required. So I think the number one thing that we need to make to apply pressure is a consistent ask. And then the number two thing that we need is a loud and consistent voice asking for it. of of each other, right? And retailers need to ask it of their tuna suppliers. Retailers and tuna suppliers need to ask it of the vessels. Um, The vessels, the retailers, and the tuna suppliers need to ask it of their countries where they do business. Um, It's agreeing what that it is, that can be hard. Um, But once you get there, then we need loud, diverse, and consistent voices.
0: Well, maybe we ought to talk about what ISSF does with respect to capacity management, because in a number of ways, you're operating on that vein.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, we talked a little bit about fads and we talked about improvements in efficiency, right? There there are two different ways in general to manage a fishery. You manage catch or you manage effort. Neither one is necessarily better than the other as long as compliance is perfect and monitoring is perfect. That's a big if. Um, But economists really, really prefer managing effort. Because if there's one thing they hate, it's inefficient spending of money. And the thing about tuna fisheries is there's a lot more money spent on boats than the fishery can and should support if ever, if there were just the exact right amount of boats to catch the exact right amount amount of fish. So that is a notion that, you know, sort of is economic in its origin. Uh, the RFMO in the eastern Pacific Ocean does control for persane, large scale per seine vessels, they do control capacity, vessel capacity itself. There are advantages to it. It's a lot, it's easier to see, it's easier to regulate, it's easier to, to count up. You know how much capacity is fishing in a particular region. So um, the first thing we did with regard to capacity is we convened over about five or six years, a number of expert workshops where we brought together Scientists, economists, fisheries managers, um, fishers, some NGOs, you know, in a group of about 30, so that you had representation from all areas of the world and just really talked through in different areas of detail how you would do this. What is really the best way to start managing capacity and then enforcing those capacity schemes in different parts of the ocean? and um, making sure that you can transfer capacity and allocate capacity to meet aspirations of developing states. And we put out a series of uh, reports based upon those workshops and those reports continue to guide our advocacy on, on that point, doing a lot of capacity building with fisheries managers you know, around the world, making sure they understand the issues and they're equipped to engage in that debate.
0: Are those reports yeah. accessible to the public?
1: They are. Yeah. They're on our website, and and we we like to think that they're they're uh, pretty readable and interesting. And they're only like five pages each. That's one of my rules. Can't you can't lose people in the middle. Um, but then, with regard to large scale purveyors themselves, because there really aren't that many, about six seven hundred globally, we took a measure where we look at global fishing capacity. And at this point, if you're building a new boat, you got to buy out an old one. There are still too many, somewhere around 40%, too many large-scale purse seiners in this world globally. It's just not an efficient system. And, you know, anytime you have an efficient system, then that temptation to cheat, to make your economic viability better is always Greater than it should be, so uh, that is an example of ISSF taking direct action. That then we have our compliance auditors um, audit every year. Uh, so, that if you want to build a new persenter, the first thing to do is get in touch with our compliance auditor, who who talks through the process of needing to buy out old capacity and you know making sure that when you build that new persenter, ISSF participating companies would be able to purchase from it if that is your goal.
0: And my goal here is to go to some more questions, so let me do that. Uh, Frank uh, no, actually, um, Frank Darabon joins us from Sandusky, Ohio, which is where I used to go fishing. I'm a Cleveland boy, and I used to, <laughs> to use dough balls to catch mostly carp, but off the pier of Sandusky near Cedar Point. He wants to know, why is bluefin tuna fishing so controversial?
1: So also, Frank, Sandusky was where I had my first job ever in my life, at spiral taffy at Cedar Point. So how about that? All roads lead through Sandusky. Um, So here's the thing with bluefin, less than 1% of the amount of tuna that is caught annually is bluefin. So if you look at the volume of the problem, it's small. However, if you look at, we talked earlier about how skipjack are the most productive of the species, Bluefin are the least. They live very, very long. It takes many, many years for them to reach reproductive maturity. Um, We talked about the fact that it's, you know, they are very small population and many people think they taste delicious and they pay a lot for them. So the issue with bluefin is for a very long time, they had been very poorly managed and compliance had not been great. Uh, a number of years ago now, the Atlantic Regional Fisheries Management Organization put in very strict and heavily enforced measures to reduce the catch of bluefin. And one of the amazing things about tuna is when you give them a break, they actually recover. And and we're seeing the trends in the Atlantic bluefin that you would absolutely hope to see. Um, so that's good and that shows what can be done. Pacific bluefin... Uh, does not have the protective management in place yet that it needs. And um, so its stock is at a very, very low point. And then Southern bluefin, all in the Southern Ocean, um, that is the first stock of tuna to have successfully implemented and enforced a harvest strategy, which is the most robust type of fisheries management. Um, So Southern bluefin has been, on the path to recovery the longest and then Atlantic is coming along and Pacific needs some action. So small stock, historically not great management to no management and very valuable fish.
0: This might be a good time, Susan, to talk about some of these rebuilding efforts with respect to tuna stocks. What's being done?
1: Um, So there's just like there's different ways to control catch or effort that that's, That's how you manage the stocks as well. One one thing you do is put out a quota, a region-wide quota that then gets allocated, should in best practice get allocated to all the countries that are fishing on that stock. You get this many, you get this many, you get this many. And when the quota quota is reached, they gotta stop pitching it for the year. If they overcatch, then that RFMO compliance mechanism is supposed to kick in and their quota for the next year or years should go down to make up for it. That's how you would control catch. Another way is to control effort. So you could close a fishery for a period of time. You could close a part of a fishery for a period of time. We talked earlier about fads. There are some oceans where fad fishing is prohibited for a certain number of months in a year, um, because during those months of the year, um, it could be that, uh, you know, fads are especially productive. So if, if we just don't set on fads for a few months, that will be very helpful to the stock overall. Um, Or, some oceans go to a, an easier, much easier to enforce measure, and there's value in that. Nobody can fish for a certain period of time. The six months or six weeks, sorry, not six months. The six weeks, every boat needs to be in port. We need to have eyes on you in port, you know, and, and, and that's another way uh, to manage a fishery. So depending upon the need of a stock and depending upon the culture in a particular region of the world, that's how it's being managed.
0: Well, you've got a Some question do about a,
1: Some do catch.
0: a particular region question. Uh, Roy Levitt wants to know, how does the Chinese fishing fleet fit into the worldwide cooperation for tuna fishing?
1: Uh, China is a member of all of the tuna RFMOs that we've been talking about. So everywhere where their boats fish, China uh, participates in those RFMOs and is subject to the same rules and the same compliance mechanisms and compliance assessment mes- mechanisms of all the other member countries.
0: And another question comes to us uh, from Ed Billings in Washington D.C. regarding compliance enforcement. Are there markets, countries where consumer preference has practical leverage over commercial fishing behavior?
1: Absolutely. Um, EU and North America for sure. Uh, you know, those are the those are the two markets that really the retailers in those markets were sort of leading the march on sustainability. Um, that that pressure. Uh, then had the EU and now the US having different IUU import regulations that fishers have to comply with. And now Japan has started very recently down that journey as well. Um, So it is uh, the higher end markets, obviously, um, that have, I think, the, the pressure to bear those markets that fishers would aspire to sell their products to, to make it worth Um, The effort to make sure that it's not only legal, but arrives in a good quality state and EU-US leaders and really happy to see Japan taking its recent efforts.
0: You know, the fascinating thing about the work you do, I I heard the TED talk you gave, something new every day, literally, isn't it? Yes, (laughs) yes. And we still have Absolutely. a lot of questions from uh, people who are listening to us live. Uh, this is uh, David in Seattle who wants to know, have you investigated the schooling behavior of baitfish around floating material, debris fields in the open ocean?
1: I would be shocked if one of the bycatch scientists we work with hasn't done that. But I can't give you a snappy link to a paper. I you know. I'll, we have done a lot and they have done a lot of tagging on diving and tagging on fads to understand all of the different fish species and populations that are hanging out at fads. I I think that is closer to the work that the scientists we work with would be doing rather than the sort of free schooling behavior. But
0: some of them may have looked into that. How do you select your scientists? How do you go about that process?
1: Yep. So, When ISSF first started, uh, there was the dean, we called him, of fishery science, James Joseph, who had been in fishery science and, uh, you know, basically founded uh, the first RFMO in the eastern tropical Pacific and was a leader um, in many of the others. And he was our first scientist. He was based in san diego and handpicked for us our first scientific advisory committee and they were uh, it was kind of the chief scientist leading scientist in each ocean region and then the leading bycatch people fisheries economists, and as he put it a couple of other just really smart scientists that are good to have in the room and we are fortunate that many of our original scientific advisory committee are still with us and then they have sort of helped foster that next generation. And because we closely partner with the scientific bodies of each of those regional fisheries management organizations, you know, that's where we're looking to partner with, or or who are the national scientists or RFMO scientists that are doing this work as part of the management regime in the region, and then helping to bolster onto that science.
0: These aren't necessarily what you call ichthyologists, are they? They're experts more in the fishing role uh, that science plays in fishing, right? Correct. I mean, as opposed to identifying fish. and Well, that brings up another question, though, as I mentioned, ichthyologists. What about the health of tuna in some of these ecologically damaged waters? Mm-hmm. What's being done, so, especially in terms of prevention?
1: Yep, I'll come back to that question. First, I have to tell you a, a story about our scientists. Um, really early on, we were very fortunate that the Rockefeller Foundation hosted one of our capacity workshops at their Bellagio, Italy uh, facility which is amazing. So with two of my sci- the scientific advisory committee members who were out walking around the lake one day, I'm like what kind of fish is that? I don't know. And I, I said, hey, "Why do we even have you?" And uh one of them said, "Well, I don't know what it is, but I he could tell you how many how many there are." And then he said, "No, I can tell you how many there should be." So this, that's an important thing to remember about fishery science is that, you know, there are all different types of them and uh, their specializations are, are very different. So to your question about the, the health, really where we are most active in that area is again on the issue of fads, because there is this question on how have the number of fads in a tuna ecosystem impacted or not the health of the tuna by helping them to aggregate, right? Do they need that exercise and hunting behavior? Are the fads sort of, you know, serving a buffet line for them? And is that good or bad? Are, are they getting out of shape or are they actually surviving better because food is more plentiful? So the work has been done around that. Verdict is yet to be determined on that one. And also now starting to see some work um, on plastics and the and impact of, of plastics and microplastics. We have a few scientists that we work closely with that are starting to do some of that research.
0: Well, I'm hoping that cel- cellular agriculture and some of this uh, thing that we see on the market now already, salmon that's made out of essentially vegetables, uh, can be more uh, ubiquitous, shall we say. Uh, I'm also interested in, i go to some of our listener questions, but how did you move from industry to what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned earlier that I was the vice president of seafood sourcing and government relations at Del Monte, and Del Monte at the time owned the Starkist brand. I kind of came up through Starkist, um, starting as their lawyer, Um, and Starkist was one of the founders of ISSF, and because bringing this disparate group of industry together, um, you needed to have a legal background uh, to make sure everything was being done appropriately. And you could work with the lawyers on that respect. You needed to have industry knowledge and you needed to um, understand how tunas were in fact managed. And part of my role at Del Monte was actually going to these RFMO meetings as Starkist's representative. So I sort of had enough knowledge to touch in every needed area and, uh, Everyone thought that it just sort of made sense for me to slide over into this role, and it it's really been great.
0: Yeah, it's been their good fortune, I think. I can't help thinking nostalgically about Charlie Tuna and that whole promotion <laughs> that was built around the idea of Charlie Tuna. It even had a little controversy at the time, as you probably yeah. know. Here's a We quest- all
1: think nostalgically about Charlie. Those, when, whenever, because, you know— when you work in the corporate world, you get stuff. So golf shirts, you know, pullover sweatshirts. And uh, so the Jackson family has some Charlie gear and that you wear it out, you get a comment to this day. You'll get a comment about Charlie.
0: Here's a question from Eric uh, in Washington, D.C. How has higher fuel prices affected tuna fishing? Do higher costs result in fewer privateers and more state sponsored fishing fleets? Does that help compliance?
1: you know, tuna is global and the cost of fuel isn't necessarily equal as it gets charged to the fleets globally. So, you know, I think that's really the answer, right? right? Some countries make fuel available. Some countries subsidize fuel. Subsidies are a problem. Some vessels are efficient. Some aren't. When things get more expensive, uh, The pressure on the vessels goes up, which is why monitoring and enforcement and compliance becomes more important. It's all part of the circle of what makes tuna so fun.
0: Are there any countries, though, that are just really bad actors that don't want to get into this cooperative mode that you've created as a paradigm and as a way for really things not to get out of hand?
1: When ISSF first began, one of the first conservation measures we had was you shouldn't buy tuna from vessels that are flagged to a country that is not a member of the RFMO where that tuna was caught. Right, So if it was caught in the Indian Ocean on country X's flag, country X needs to participate in the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission. So as recently as 2009, that was necessary because there were fleets that were successfully selling their tuna that were not participating in the management regime at all. Um, That situation has resolved itself. We, We are pleased to say that that sort of pressure and leadership by industry has brought those countries into the RFMO membership. So as we sit here today, the countries that are Catching tuna in a region and selling it commercially are participating in the management bodies.
0: some of these of course, geog- geographical areas overlap though, don't they?
1: They do. but as long as you're a member as long as you're staying in the overlap area and you're a member of one of the two, you're okay. You don't have to be a member of both
0: what can can you give us some uh, index really of how many tons of tuna are essentially harvested? Uh, I can. just under five million. Yeah. Of, of the major
1: species of, of tuna, right? So bluefin, big eye, yellowfin, albacore, skipjack. Last year it was about 4.9 million tons.
0: And they're all different in terms of <laughs> the rules that govern them in the waters, right?
1: The, well, because. And how they behave.
0: The, yeah.
1: That's it. It's because of their characteristics, right? We talked about bluefin takes a long time to mature. They live a very long time. Then as we work down, big eye, albacore, yellowfin, and then skipjack, you know, skipjack only lives three three to five years and, and they mature pretty quickly. We, you know, one of the things I love about scientists is they're so unemotional, which sometimes means they don't quite catch what you should and shouldn't say publicly and we were writing a blog about you know how much we love skipjack because they are just such rapid reproducers and really really uh, a great um fish for food for protein for the environment for catching um and it, he wanted to make the point of how they reproduce so quickly and i'm like well say they're like rabbits of the ocean and he <sighs> says they're actually even more like cockroaches. I'm like, you can't call them cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) I said, plus I don't think people understand that, you know, rabbits they'll get, that sounds, they'll understand what that means with regard to tunas that that they actually really do reproduce very, very quickly and live very short lives.
0: So the scientists play a pretty central role in terms of policymaking, don't they? Scientists are
1: critical to policymaking, absolutely. If you don't have a scientific basis for what you're doing, then whatever you're doing isn't going to have any effect. You know, at at the end of the day, if if a result needs to change, somebody today needs to do something different. So you need to make sure that what they're doing differently is worth the effort for the impact that it's going to have to achieve the result that you want to get to. Scientists are the ones that tell you that.
0: Another good question from Eric up in Washington, D.C. He wants to know, down in Washington, D.C., um, depends on where you are in latitude. Um, but he says, have tuna fishing yields been noticeably affected by climate changes and uh, slight changes in ocean currents producing real changes in yields?
1: So if by yields you mean catches, you know they move, and yeah. that's part of the thing of tuna is they move all around the ocean. So, So really what you're seeing is you're seeing – Different catches in different countries' waters, right? From some country that used to not catch very much is catching a lot, or some country that would catch a lot used to not catch very much. Um, they're they're showing up in places they didn't used to show up. They're, you know, famous reports recently of skipjack in Alaska. That's crazy. Um, but but that's the type of thing that's gonna happen, which is what makes the regional cooperation, all the more important. And also you need to make sure that you've got those compliance mechanisms in place regionally, because if the countries that were really good at monitoring the catches in their waters become the countries where the tunas have moved away from and the countries where they're moving to haven't upped their game, then you're playing catch up. So, you know, as the climate changes, you need to make sure that you've really been paying attention to region-wide management of these stocks. I will say though, even going back, you know, we, we like winter in the Jackson family. We're all skiers. We all look to see, is it an El Nino year or a La Nina year? Where's the snow gonna be good? Well, you, you know, tuna fishers used to same th- see the same thing because one was good for the Eastern Pacific and one was bad for the Western Pacific. So in tuna fishing, understanding water temperature and currents is part of what they've always done. I'm not at all minimizing climate change. I'm just saying that this, for the tuna stocks as a whole, is going to become a larger range. Management's going to become harder, but it's within the realm from a catch perspective of what the fishery as a whole is used to doing.
0: Well, this may be a bit of a jump, uh, but you know, when I was kidding around asking you about metaphor for marketing, you must have given some thought or maybe some musing to the idea that all this cooperation that's been fostered with tuna fishing might have some application to international relations and getting countries to cooperate with each other on, well, bigger questions like disarmament or whatever. I'm sure that's occurred to you, hasn't it?
1: Boy, we sure hope so. Um, yeah, but to you know, bring those we, principles
0: to bear somehow, uh, there's something to learn from what you've managed to get in the way of cooperation, global cooperation.
1: Yes, yeah. You said you watched my TED talk, and one of the one of the chapters in that TED talk was was our model is bigger than our niche, and you know we absolutely believe that that this model and approach that we're using can be can and should be applied to lots of problems and when i talked about those workshops where we brought together scholars and academics many of them worked in other environmental agreement areas Um, and and i talk about these regional fisheries management organizations yes from the u.s for example there's someone from NOAA or national marine Fisheries service they're scientists but there's also always someone from the state department it is absolutely a diplomatic endeavor
0: and there's always difficulty reaching consensus isn't there
1: yep that's why i'm so thankful we have diplomats because they've they've got that in their in their blood is trying to understand how to get there
0: I'm going to get to some more questions. Um, Actually, the question from Juan again in Mexico City wants to know if any of your experiences uh, uh, with ISS could be applied to other fields. Uh, I was raising that in the global perspective of maybe using diplomacy that you've learned. But other fields come to mind in addition to international relations?
1: Um, Sure. I, I think any environmental field, right? There's lots of calls for companies right now to be disclosing their impact on the environment, be it water use or carbon footprint or greenhouse gas emissions or how you're sourcing your electricity. And the fundamental premise of what we do is, A, what does the science say you should be doing? And what does the science say about how practically you should be implementing that? And then how are you credibly demonstrating it? Those are the three things, right? what to do how to do it so it's effective and then how to be clear and credible in demonstrating that you're doing it no matter what you're being asked to demonstrate that you don't harm rainforest in your product or your your carbon emissions whatever there's a lot of things if you keep those three principles in mind i think you're going to be successful
0: we'll get back to well we mentioned sea turtles before and uh, keith again in london is. Has- asking about reducing the impact of accidental capture of other marine species like sea turtles. I mean, which so uh, you're doing. I mean, you're succeeding in doing, yeah?
1: Yeah, let's talk. We talk. We've talked a lot about fish aggregating devices. We work a lot on fish aggregating devices. Let's talk about them and sea turtles, right? Um, one of the first things that was known about them is... You know because the top floats and so it's sunny and warm and turtles would like to get up there and hang out well sometimes they'd get stuck because what would happen is the fishers would use old fishing nets and just wrap that top up and so one of the very first things we did is outreach to to the fleets to teach them you know don't put old nets there make sure you're using canvas something that's flat so that if a turtle climbs up on there it can get off so there are often very common sense practical solutions for issues like that. Um, One of the other things that we're doing with turtles is um, the the scientists have determined that for sea turtles, the best impact for dollar spent for the health of the sea turtle populations is nesting beach protection. Absolutely, the number one thing to do is protect those nesting beaches. So the ISSF participating companies, there are four of them, Bumblebee, Starkist, Thai Union and Trimarine that sell longline caught albacore pay a tax on the amount of longline caught albacore that they sell to ISSF. That then we have turtle scientists who, would, who advise us on turtle nesting beach habit, habitat protection projects that are being done locally around the world, and we give that money out to them um to protect the the nesting beaches so they're you know it's it's really kind of a cool program and um the scientists love it because it really really has a meaningful impact um on on the turtle population so that's just another example of let the scientists what's the problem you're trying to confront let the scientists tell you the most effective way to confront it so that you're deploying your resources as effectively as possible to have the impact in this case help the population of sea turtles.
0: So where does the impact or the work of the scientists uh, or your work come into uh, what I mentioned earlier, uh, seabirds endangered getting hooked by tuna fishing hooks?
1: Yeah, you know, a number of years ago, WWF used to sponsor the this competition called the Smart Gear Competition, where fishers would put in their ideas, things that they invented to minimize bycatch. And ISSF one year sponsored a tuna prize. And the tuna prize was a long line um, that was to mitigate the bycatch of seabird. And it was a double weighted line. So you had two different weights so that it would sink fast before the birds could dive down. So we've been doing and an, you know facilitating some research there. But the real issue is really making sure the boats do what they've already been told to do. Um, that's the most frustrating thing with seabirds. It's not, it's not like our quest for the eco sounder swim bladder, you know, eco sounder signals, the seabirds, it's known what the long liner should do to not entangle or catch seabirds. It's about making sure that the monitoring is happening at sea so that you can feel confident that the boat you're buying the fishing, f- the fish from is actually doing those things.
0: And you police that? <laughs> or you
1: issf does not police no anything we don't run observer programs but we are working with other organizations on electronic monitoring pilots and getting electronic monitoring systems on board longliners and and having those systems be screened to start to collect that data and and look for what's being done for the actual implementation on the water around these long line bycatch mitigation measures
0: but it also strikes me that there are so many different parts of the governments that you work with you have to get them sort of working in concert with one another too. get synergy or get essentially cooperation between all of them
1: you do um fortunately in tuna the regional fisheries management organizations actually also put rules in place around bycatch mitigation so the flag states should be implementing the agreed measures by those regional bodies and should be reporting on compliance and those regional bodies should be measuring and judging the compliance of its member countries and publicizing those results. Still work to do to make that more effective and more transparent, but they are in fact cooperating on that, which is really, really an important step.
0: Well, as I said earlier, I think uh, uh, that they're lucky to have you out there working on this. Uh, Susan Jackson, again, president of the Nonprofit International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. You've educated us. You've enlightened us here. And I really appreciate it. I'm grateful for your time and grateful for your leadership uh, in your organization, which has really made a difference. Thank you. Well,
1: thank you. And thank you for having me.
0: This episode... Of Gray Matter now comes to a close. to remind you, you can always learn more about Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show and more episodes up ahead. Thank you for being with us.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by
0: Cashfly
1: at C A C H E F L Y dot com.